0: Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, which is where we'll begin this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 20 through 24. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Last week, We talked about the practical theology of divorce and remarriage. And as we follow up this week, uh, I want to focus not on simply how do we avoid divorce, but how do we build marriages that are all that God designed them to be? Uh, Every marriage has just three possibilities. 50% of first marriages end in divorce. That oneness that began on the day of the wedding slowly dissolves and the couple begin to grow apart. And eventually file papers with the civil authorities and they dissolve this union that God had created and there is divorce and the numbers among Christians are about the same 50% roughly of Christian marriages end in divorce then there's another percentage of marriages that uh, don't actually go through the process of filing papers but the couple grows apart they don't grow in oneness they grow distant to one another and they don't enjoy Uh, one another they're not satisfied in one another they're not uh, rejoicing and celebrating one another they stay together but basically they're glorified roommates there's not intimacy there's not oneness like God had designed and that's another big percentage of marriage But God's design was that this oneness that begins on the day of the wedding would grow and grow and grow. And couples would enjoy one another and celebrate one another. And they'd love one another in such a way that people would watch this union and they would see a a picture of God's nature itself. And they would see a picture of the way that Jesus Christ loves us and be drawn to him. That's God's plan for marriage. And no one starts their marriage thinking that they'll have anything but that. But they don't realize that that doesn't happen by accident. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of forces working against a marriage, moving toward what God had designed. The first two forces are husband and wife. <laughs> They're both selfish. We start marriage as self-centered people because we're born self-centered. There's this thing called the flesh in us. It's woven into our, our very beings. And it is a commitment to pursue our own self-interest. No matter what the cost, no matter what it does to other people. As we grow in Christ, God shows us how foolish that is and that joy is found in giving to others. But that's the basic nature of men and women. There's also Satan who is set against marriage. He hates marriage and he wants to destroy marriage. And so there are all these factors that are working against it. You have to cultivate a marriage if you want it to grow in oneness. You have to pay attention to it and guard it and protect it. Last summer, I planted a garden for our kids. I wanted them to know what it was like to uh, see fruit and vegetables grow and to go out into your backyard and to take that fruit, take that vegetable, take it into your house and actually uh, eat something that you'd grown. So I built a raised bed and I put the best dirt into it that I could find from the dirt store, right? I didn't have a lot of experience in growing gardens, but I got good stuff. Then I got good seed and good plants and we put them in the garden and we watered and we fertilized and we pulled weeds and we began to enjoy the fruit. From our, garden. our kids went out and they enjoyed tomatoes and they liked spinach. We ate some of the spinach and we had watermelons growing in our garden, but they weren't quite big enough to eat. And then we had to leave on vacation. We we're gone for two weeks And when we came back, no one had been guarding our garden and no one had been tending our garden and our garden had grown up and there were weeds everywhere. And as we pulled apart the weeds, we found that deer or raccoons or something had gotten into our garden and all of those watermelons were torn apart. Our garden was just a disaster. It was, it didn't even look like a garden. It was just time to get out the weed eater, you know, just just mow the whole thing down, start over, look terrible because no one had guarded, no one had tended. No one had watered. No one had fertilized. Well, the same thing is true in marriage. Unless you pay attention to it, unless you exert your your effort toward making this thing grow toward oneness that God designed, it's going to become overgrown. It's not going to produce the fruit that God designed and that you desired. So how do we do that? Well, if you're married, you may have noticed the fact that it's really difficult to change your spouse, isn't it? (laughs) Often our husbands and wives, they don't submit to our control very well. If you have kids, you notice that your kids don't bend to your will that well. Either, either do they. You, know, you can't make someone else change. Sometimes you can manipulate their behavior, but you can't change the other person, can you? What can you change? You can change yourself, right? You have control over your responses, over your attitudes. And so if you want to have a truly great marriage... The best thing that you can do is become a truly great spouse. Become a great husband. Become a great wife. Uh, If you're single here, these principles apply to you as well. They apply to all relationships. And what we're going to talk about this morning, none of it's going to be super complex. It's going to just be basic and fundamental to the growing of healthy relationships. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you five practices of people who build great marriages this morning. Okay, it won't be exhaustive, but five things that I think are most important. I want you to begin by turning with me to John chapter 15 and verse 4. John 15 verse 4. Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The most important thing that you can do for your marriage is to abide in your relationship with Christ. To abide means to remain in intimate fellowship with him. If you want great relationships with others, whether it's marriage or friends or children, The most important thing that you can do is to grow in your relationship with Christ. Cultivate your relationship with Christ. Jesus uses an image here and he says, I'm the vine, I'm the source. You're the branches and if you want fruit to be produced in your life, what you've got to do is you've got to stay intimately connected with me. Now that assumes that they already have a relationship with him. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you are already in me because you believe the word that I spoke to you you are in the vine because you've trusted in me. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the most important thing that you can do for your earthly relationships is to begin a relationship with your creator God. And the way that you do that is you say, God, thank you for giving Jesus Christ to remove the barrier of that relationship. The sin that produced separation has been paid for by Jesus Christ and he can bring you back to God. And the moment that you, that you express to God, God, thank you for reconciling me through Christ, you are brought back into a harmonious relationship. And once you do that, God begins the process of growing you and transforming you. As you cling to Christ, as you submit to him, and as you obey him, and as you spend time with him, he makes you more and more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that will cause you to become a different person. God will speak wisdom into your mind and it'll transform your speech. Give you wisdom to know when to speak and what to say. That has a big influence on relationships. It'll transform you because it'll cause you to move past your self-centered desires and move into other people's lives and see the joy of giving and loving and serving. The greatest influence that you can have on your relationships with others is to abide or to spend time with, remain in intimate fellowship with God. You know, that's true of every relationship. Friends, husbands, wives, if you want the relationship to grow, you have to spend time in the relationship. Now, if you're married, think back about the time when you began to first date. You first began to pursue one another. How much time did you spend with one another? <laughs> as much as you absolutely could, right? You sacrifice sleep, sacrifice meals. Students, you sacrifice study. You study together, which means you don't study. And your grades go like this, and mom and dad say, What's going on? I'm in love right? Because you want time together. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You just want to be together. And that's what begins to build that bond. All these shared experiences, things big, things small, things important, things trivial. It's true of every relationship. It's true of our relationship with God. And that relationship with God through Jesus Christ is what changes our characters to cause us to become people who know how to love well and know how to build healthy relationships. In particular, healthy marriages. So, first, people who build great marriages abide in Christ. Second, people who build great marriages get past themselves. You're born into the world thinking about yourself. You enter marriage. And often what you do as you enter marriage is, because you've worked so hard to get to this point, you've suppressed the flesh for a while. And you've fooled that person. <laughs> And maybe you haven't allowed that flesh to come to the surface because uh, you want to win, okay? You want to capture that person. But then once you're married and there's security in that relationship, flesh starts to come up again, okay? That natural propensity to pursue our own self-interest. And if you want to have a really healthy and great marriage, you have to die to yourself every day. Say no to self and yes to your spouse. You will either crucify flesh on the altar of your marriage or you will crucify your marriage on the altar of flesh and self. Something's got to give. I want you to look with me just two chapters back. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, then he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Skip down to verse 12. So, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Did you get it? (laughs) Did you you get the point of this object lesson? Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay, did you get the object lesson? You call me teacher and Lord, I'm the master. You're right in calling me such, that that is who I am. And who are you? Well, you're the followers. I'm here, you're here. I'm God in human flesh. I'm the creator of the universe. I know all things. And here you are. You're my creatures. You're my 12 followers who are very petty and self centered. I'm here, you're here. And what did I just do for you? I stooped low, and I actually took on the form of a slave. Because it's the slave who washes the guest's feet as they enter into the house. And as we entered into the house, there was no slave there to wash feet. And so you didn't wash one another's feet. And you didn't wash my feet even though I'm the teacher and I'm the Lord and I'm the master. So I did it for you. Now, all that I want you to do is to do the same for one another. Because what I want you to do is I want you to build this community. I want you to build these relationships that demonstrate the way that I love you. And the way that you do that is you've got to get past yourself. You have to die to self. And marriage is hard. You know why it's hard? Because of ourselves. Because we have to die daily and it hurts to die daily. That hurts. Probably the greatest passage on marriage wasn't even actually written about marriage. It's Philippians chapter 2. Paul says to the church in Philippi, I want you to be of the same mind with one another. And the way that you do that is consider one another more important than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but consider the interests of others, even as more important than your own personal interests. How do you do that? He says, well, look to Christ. He was in the very form of God. And yet he didn't cling to that equality with God. Instead, he stooped low and he took on human form. And not just human form, but the form of a slave and he served even to the point of sacrificing himself on the cross. He so said, Now I want you to go and do the same for one another. And that is how you build healthy relationships because each is giving all. Okay, each is coming into the relationship, serving and sacrificing and giving all. That is how relationships grow and are healthy. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't just sacrifice his desires, it wasn't just, you know, sacrificing. You want to go eat at this restaurant and I want to eat here. No, he was sacrificing rights. As God, he had the right to remain in perfect fellowship with his Father in heaven. But he chose to come down to earth and take on human flesh. As God, in human flesh, he had the right as he was hanging on the cross and he was being cruelly treated to call on the angels to rescue him, to escape from this pain and this spiritual separation. He had the right to do so, but he sacrificed his rights and Paul is telling us that's how you build healthy relationships. That's how you build a marriage that really goes the distance. Serve one another, sacrifice for one another. You know, sometimes um, I try to live this out in my home. And, um, you know, as as a husband, as a father of young children, there are times when I get tired. And I have to remember, I come home from work and the day's not done. So my wife is tired too, and I need to help. I need to help around the house. There are chores that still need to be done, baths, reading, meals, cleaning up, laundry, all these things that were really difficult to get done when all the kids are around and they're going crazy. And, you know, my day isn't done when I leave the office and sometimes I'm giving and I'm giving and I'm giving and I feel really tired of giving. And I feel like no one's really grateful for the fact that I've been working all day long and now I'm coming home and I'm doing more. And I feel like I can't give anymore. I can't get, you know, and I feel like people are treating me like a servant. And then this little voice goes off in the back of my head and it says, Guess what? You are a servant, right? When you said I do, that's what you signed up for to be chief servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is your job. That is your role. So when people treat you like a servant, guess what? That's who you are. So get after it and stop whining about it. That's who you are. And paradoxically, that's where you'll find your greatest fulfillment. When you die, you find life. When you give, you receive so much more back. But because it's a paradox, you've got to trust me, you've got to try it, you've got to launch out into it, and it's scary and it's risky, but I promise it works. This is how marriage works, this is how relationships work. People who build great marriage marriages say no to self, they die to self, they move past self. Okay, third principle, people who build great marriages accept one another like Christ. I should turn to Romans with me, chapter 15. When Tristan and I got married, we picked out a few verses that we wanted to kind of um, characterize our marriage. Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, were a few of the verses that we picked out. Start reading verse 5, it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that Genesis 2 principle. Growing in oneness together. That you may with one accord with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We said that's what we want to be true of our marriage. How do you do that? Verse 7. therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. How did Jesus Christ accept you? Did he look at you and say, yes, come, let me reconcile you to the Father as soon as you fix that issue? You have that practice, that bad habit, you have that character quality that I really need you to work on, and then I will reconcile you to the Father. Is that how he said it? No, he said, just as you are. Beautiful hymn, isn't it? Just as I am. Old, known, profoundly true, just as I am. Paul says, accept one another exactly the way that God has accepted you through Jesus Christ, just as I am. Okay, I want you to go back with me again to the garden. And we're watching Adam, and he's, he's naming all the animals. He's naming the elephants and the hippos and the lions. And he's naming, naming everything, and none of them are appropriate. None of them are suitable to be alongside him as he fulfills God's design for his life, so God puts him to sleep, takes a rib. From that rib, he fashions woman, and he brings Eve to Adam. And, and imagine Adam seeing Eve for the first time, and he steps back. He says, no, <laughs> no, that's not really what I had in mind, God. I was thinking, I don't know, something a little shorter. I was thinking red hair, not brown hair. Um, could you try, no, that, is that what he said? No, he said, wow, oh man, God, oh, this is uh, perfect. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, taken from me. She will be called Esha because I am Esha. She is perfect. We fit. He accepted her just as she was. And then they rebelled against God and they sinned. And what happened? They began hurling accusations back and forth at one another. They didn't Accept one another just as they were. They covered over their nakedness and there was a barrier because they felt shame in front of one, or one another, in front of God. And so now every single one of us who are in any relationship whatsoever have battled from that first mistake to accept ourselves and accept one another as we are. Okay? Accepting one another just as we are. I have a good friend Whose wife has a degenerative disease. She's dying of this disease very slowly. She's had it for, for many years. And it's taken away her movement. She can't walk any longer. She really can't use her hands. Her speech has gotten worse and worse and worse. A few years ago, she almost died. But God gave her life, she, she, she extended that. But it's difficult. You know, she can't clean the house anymore, she can't make the meals. Your husband comes home and his job's given him some flexibility so he can take care of her in the morning, he can get things going, he can come back at lunch, he can spend lunch with her and share a meal and then he comes back in the evening and he can be with her again and God has given them this incredible intimacy and I watch their marriage and say, wow, that's amazing. They didn't sign up for that. It wasn't what they expected when they made their vows. Things have changed. But rather than saying no... That's, God, that's not what I expected. That's not what I wanted. Instead, they've accepted one another in the circumstances God has brought, and He's created this incredible, beautiful oneness that has grown and grown and grown to the glory of God. Your spouse probably has some things that you don't like. Do you accept your spouse? Because when we experience unconditional acceptance, that's that good soil, right? Then people have the courage to grow and to change because they know even if I fail, I'm accepted, I'm loved. Let me, let me describe acceptance to you. Let me give you a few things to think about. What it isn't, what it is. Acceptance does not ask the question, did I marry the wrong person? I know that thoughts probably run through your head at some point in time. Did I? Acceptance is not, did I ask the question, did I marry the wrong person? Because you know what? It's absolutely irrelevant. The question is irrelevant. Uh, frequently, students used to come to me and they'd say, man, Brian, how, how do you know? You know, I'm dating this person. How do you know this is God's will? How do you know this is the person for you? And I'd say, you know, this is horribly unromantic, but you don't. You don't know. Things seem to line up. You enjoy that person. She enjoys you. you. You share a lot of goals. Personalities fit. You've asked advice of your friends. They see things working well. You have a similar walk with the Lord, direction in life. All these things really seem to fit. You become convinced that this is the person God has for you. And then you take this huge leap of faith. Because you can't guarantee who you will be in 10 years, and you, she can't guarantee who she will be in 10 years. It's a step of faith. But I say, as soon as you give your vows to one another, then you know. Then you know. Because the will of God for you is that you be faithful to this person and grow in oneness for the rest of your lives. Then you know, before you give your vows, you don't know, you're taking a step of faith. You've taken the step of faith, you gave your word, now you know. Now you know. And if you're working on a second marriage or a third marriage, I'm telling you, you know now from this day forth that you will do everything that is in your power to grow in oneness in the Lord. That is the will of God for you. So that question is irrelevant. Okay. Acceptance does trust in the sovereignty of God. We make decisions that aren't the best decisions. But we follow a good and a sovereign God and so he takes every decision, any decision that we make, any circumstance that we've lived through, and he can create beauty from it. And so we trust him to work miracles in our lives and in our marriages. We're not constantly going back and trying to second guess that decision because it is irrelevant. Acceptance does not rehearse a list of things you don't like. Whether you're speaking them out loud or just running them through your mind, they are destructive to you. They're destructive to your marriage. Instead, acceptance practices continual thankfulness. If your marriage is really struggling right now, maybe that's a little harder. Come up with those things. Well I want you to go all the way back to when you first met that person and begin to grow in love. There were things that attracted you. Rehearse those. Rehearse those over and over in your mind. Rehearse them by speaking them to the other person because it's powerful when you praise. Acceptance does not threaten to leave. Okay, never, ever, ever, never do that. Never do that. Never. Ever. (laughs) That's not fair. That's not good, clean fighting. You don't do that. Okay? Instead, what you do is you constantly affirm your commitment to stay. I will never leave. Especially in the midst of a fight or an argument. You say, I am committed to you. I will never go. I choose you. And we will get through this. Then you have the stability to work through the conflict. You never threaten, always verbalize commitment. Acceptance does believe the best. Okay? When, when people believe in us, and when people accept us, and when they have vision for our lives, it gives courage. Okay? Even for those of you who are absolutely the most secure, when somebody believes in you, it is powerful, it's transforming. I found a great illustri- illustration of this. This week, it was about two friends. True story, Johnny Eccles and Marty Marion. These boys grew up together. They grew up playing baseball together. And they committed that they would always play ball together. Well, Johnny became a pretty good player. And Marty was just average. He was mediocre. They both made the high school team. Johnny was getting better and better. Everybody knew his name throughout Atlanta. And uh, the coach came to him one day and he said, there are tryouts nearby. And I think that you should... Go try out. I think you can make it in the big leagues. And Johnny said, Great. Marty and I will go. And his coach said, No, Marty's not that good. There's no way that he'd be able to make it. You need to go. You need to go by yourself. And said, so, No, Marty and I will go. We'll buy tickets and we'll go together because we're a package deal. Nothing the coach could do. I can't stop you. Go ahead. Well, Marty's mom even said, Don't, don't take Marty. Okay? He said, He's not going to make it. It just discourage him. And Johnny said, I believe in Marty, and we're a package deal. We're going to go. We're going to try out together. We'll see what happens. So they got their tickets. They went up. They did the tryout. Scout saw Johnny, and he said, Johnny, I want to give you a contract. Do you have what it takes? And Johnny said, great. Marty and I would love to sign up. Okay, true story. Scott said, no, we're not offering Marty a contract because he can't make it. And Johnny said, well, we're a package deal. You want to sign me up? You have to sign him up. Wow, can you imagine? Scott said, well, you know, you're good enough that It's worth the risk. I think he's probably going to wash out anyway, so we'll give you both a contract. Three years later, Johnny washed out. Marty was getting better and better, and he had found out what his friend Johnny had done for him and how he believed in him, and he said to himself, you know, I'm going to become the best player I can possibly become to prove my friend right. He got a call one day from St. Louis Cardinals to come up to the majors. He became their shortstop. 1944 World Series, Marty Marion was the MVP. A true story. When people believe in us, it is so powerful. It helps us believe in ourselves. On the other hand, you may have noticed criticism doesn't work. Hardly ever. You think you can change somebody. You pick, you pick, you pick, you know, just nag, just nag, nag, just, you know, change, change, change. I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to, you, know, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm going to get you. I, I'll fix, I'm going to change that person. It doesn't work, does it? Does it ever work? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It, okay? Probably someone who's tried. Never, it doesn't work. I've tried, you know, it It discourages, it frustrates, it puts the other person on the defensive. It doesn't give them courage to change. When you believe and you have vision for the other person's life and you sing their praises, it is transforming. Okay, it's transforming. Okay, and this is what acceptance does for us. Now, fourth, people who build great marriages practice empathy. This is what empathy means. It's the ability to identify with and understand someone else's feelings or circumstances. It's getting into the other person's world. John 11 is a great illustration. Remember, this is uh, where Lazarus uh, has died. Jesus delayed coming so that Lazarus would die, so that he could raise him from the dead. Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. He knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. And then when he sees Martha weeping and he sees Mary weeping and they take him to the tomb, it says what? Jesus wept. Which is, it's just always been stunning to me. Jesus wept even though he knows, you know, give me five minutes and I'm going to take him out of the tomb. But he's weeping because he is empathizing. He is entering into their pain, their pathos. He's feeling what they feel, this horrible consequence of sin in the world which creates death and grief that spreads to so many, and Jesus enters into that. Jesus is the greatest empathizer ever. The incarnation is the greatest illustration of empathy. God took on human flesh. Hebrews 2 tells us he took on human flesh so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. So that he could experience everything that we, that we have to experience on this earth. You know, hunger and thirst and pain. Even temptation itself. Okay, he got perfectly into our world. You want to build your relationship with your spouse or with children or with friends. Feel what they feel. Okay, what does it feel like to be in their circumstances? One of the greatest books that my wife and I have found to kind of just practically teach this skill. It's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Great book. Again, simple principles, but, but really powerful, really profound. He talks about five languages of love or five ways that we give and receive love. I think I yeah, put them up here. Okay? These are his five. Words of affirmation. Okay? Speaking encouraging words to the other person. Quality time. Receiving gifts, acts of service, physical touch. So speaking, encouraging words, just spending time together, receiving gifts, doing things practically for the other person, physical touch, not just sex, but touch, just holding and usually holding without any expectation. People give and receive love in lots of different ways. For most of us, we probably have several of these, maybe all of these. Yeah, I like to be loved in all those ways. And for some of us, they change through time. I know when we had small children, uh, before acts of service weren't really high on my wife's list, but when we had little kids, wow, acts of service became really important. Changing that diaper, man, that was romantic. It was a huge act of love. Hey, what's your love language? How do you receive it? How do you want to receive it? You know how you discover it Usually. How do you give it most naturally? Yeah, that's probably your love language. The way that you naturally give love. Problem is when you get married, you don't consciously do this, but subconsciously you think that everybody receives love the way that you give love. So, you know, husbands, we're out there, we're throwing out these great love bombs. Man. And they're not received. They don't have any impact, no effect. Instead, You know, husbands and wives, we're missing one another because we're giving in a way that the other person doesn't receive. The wife says, you know, I don't want any more jewelries or watches or necklaces. I just would you just sit on the couch and hold my hand while we watch this romantic movie? Let's just be together. Because that's how I receive it. Empathy practically means learning to speak the other person's language. Don't assume that what makes you feel loved makes the other person feel loved. First Peter chapter. Four, I think it is uh, chapter three. Peter says, "Husbands live with your wives in an understanding way." I always encourage husbands. I say, "Become a student of your wife, wife, wives. Become a student of your husband. What causes the other person to feel loved? And then speak their language." Okay, that's practically how we learn to empathize. Now, one final point: build with your words. People who build great marriages build with their words. Words are powerful. When God chose to create, he spoke. In the beginning was the word, we're told in John 1, the word was with God, the word was God. That's an echo of Genesis chapter 1, where God spoke and the universe came into being. God is a a wonderful communicator. And because you are created in his image, he has given you the power of words And you can grow in your capacity to communicate, but you need to understand and acknowledge that words are extremely powerful, either for good or for evil, either for building or for destroying. Let me illustrate from the book of Proverbs. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And then again, chapter 12, verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I mean, this, is, this is a really enormous subject within marriage itself. Uh, books and books have been written on it. I, I would say this is one place you should probably focus your attention, learning to communicate well. Let me give you just uh, three ideas this morning. In regards to communication, first in your marriage, criticize sparingly simply because it doesn't work. Sometimes in a marriage, you have to confront a behavior or words. You're offended. You have to deal with issues. Know when to deal with it. Never, ever, ever criticize your spouse in public in front of others. Never, ever, 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 never, ever. Never. ever. Don't ever do that. Never. That's, that's something you should never do. Okay. Don't do that at all because... It totally undermines the the confidence, the trust. This is the marriage. And as Sheldon Van Auken says, we have this shining barrier around it. This is the team. And we protect the team. We don't take shots at our teammates in front of others. If it has to be confronted, we go off in private and we make sure that the timing is right. And we speak the truth in love. And we surround it with all kinds of praise and compliments and encouragement and reminders of commitment. And we never ever use sarcasm because sarcasm is a veiled criticism or at least it feels like that. Your spouse may laugh but then in the back of their mind they wonder, well why did he say that? It must have been floating in his mind somewhere even to have said it and to put it into the form of a joke. It takes its toll. And it undermines that confidence. No sarcasm ever. And if you feel like something was sarcastic... You say to your spouse, that felt sarcastic, and if you said the thing, then you say, please forgive me, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and you just, you wipe it out. No sarcasm. And don't hang around with sarcastic people, okay, because it's so easy to pick up, okay? It's just cheap humor, and you pick it up quick. It's easy to get in that mode, okay? So first, criticize sparingly. Second, praise profusely. praise and praise and praise, Find things to speak. If it is in your power to do good with your words, then do good. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children. Speak the words because they are life. We're far more fragile than we'd like to acknowledge. Criticism crushes us and we're far more needy than we'd like to acknowledge. Praise builds us up and gives us confidence. So praise profusely. And now, this may sound really very simple, but learn to laugh again together. A joyful heart is good medicine. And life is so serious and so intense. You know, we're in this this, uh, eternally significant venture right now where people's destinies are riding on the way that we walk with the Lord and the words that we speak and, you know, the way that we conduct ourselves and our family and our neighborhood and our job. Wow, that's really intense. We need to learn to step back and enjoy one another and laugh together. You did laugh together when you were dating. You found things that you both enjoyed. Well, cultivate that. Together. Now, let me leave you with three points of application. Okay, the first, again, simple, what your parents said when they sent you off to kindergarten. Choose your friends wisely. Never changes. Because who you're around, they're going to they're influence you. If you walk with wise men, you will be wise, we're told in Proverbs. If you walk with people who have really strong and healthy marriages, you will have an influence on the way that you treat one another. Tristan and I were first married, there were four or five couples that we identified. We said we really liked their marriages. In that first year or two years, we spent more of our time with them because we knew we were laying a foundation. We liked the way that the husbands and wives spoke to each other and about one another when the other person was gone. We said we want to be like that, so we have to be around that because if we're paying attention to these things, it helps us become those kind of people. And if you are around couples, if your closest friends have destructive, toxic marriages, I'm telling you, seriously, step back. Okay, You have to limit the time with them. Your closest friends have to share your vision for what your marriage can and should become. And all this over there, that's ministry. Okay, I'm not kidding. If all of your closest friends Wives, if you're around these women and they're, they're picking at their husband, they're criticizing their husband, husbands, men who are making jokes about their wives and jokes about marriage and diminishing the significance of marriage, you're around that all the time, it's going to influence the way that you think. It, it, it'll kill you. But you have to have a close circle of friends who believe in marriage. Lots of marriages don't work. Lots of marriages broken. The problem is not with marriage. The problem is with us. And you can find those marriages that are strong and healthy, and husband and wife are enjoying one another. Be around those people, singles. Find those couples as well. Be around them. If you come from a home that was broken or your parents' marriage was not not really strong and healthy, get around some of those couples. We can put you into homes. A lot of strong marriages in this church. We can put you in those homes and you can see a model. Because that's really the best way we learn. Okay? So first piece of advice: choose your friends wisely. Second, Be proactive this summer. Read one book. Hundreds of books written about marriage. Two that uh, Tristie and I really like, Five Love Languages and Building Your Mate's Self-Esteem by Dennis and Barbara Rainey. Those are two really good books. Just pick one. A lot of them say all the same things because, you know, like I said, none of this is super complex, but what this does is it gives you uh, food for conversation. Just start, you may not even get through the book, but just start reading it, talking about it. Be proactive. Make it a goal To have your marriage grow, to cultivate that garden. Third, if you are struggling in your marriage right now, please don't be too proud to ask for help. Find another couple around you that their marriage is strong and say, Would you please give us help? Don't wait till you're at a point of no return. Let God step in through those around you in the body of Christ who can help you grow and learn good habits so that your marriage can grow in intimacy and oneness. That's God's design and it can happen. No matter where you are today, it can grow in oneness to provide enjoyment for you, but also glory to God. And that's that's what God's design is for your marriage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of marriage. We acknowledge and confess that um, it is our, our nature, our bent, to think about ourselves first, and that is destructive in all of our relationships. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to change the patterns in our lives, to cling closely to Christ, to let him transform us and make us into people who are unconditional lovers of others around us, that we accept one another just as Christ has accepted us, that we learn to use our speech to build, not to destroy And Father, as you do that, I pray that you would create relationships within this body and people would look in and they'd say, my, how they love one another. They know that we are your disciples and they'd be drawn to your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you and we'll see you next week.